Well, good evening, everyone. I'd like to invite you to take out your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. I appreciate uh, everyone being out tonight. Good to see you. Uh, thankful for all of our visitors. I uh, hope the lesson tonight uh, is encouraging to you. I, I think the last few lessons that we've been do- doing since uh, basically the beginning of the meeting, meeting uh, I guess I would call them faith aligning lessons, maybe. Uh, but what I'm going to try to do starting tonight is give you more some faith building lessons. Uh, so beginning night, we're going to start that. Uh, tomorrow night, um, we're, I'm going to uh, preach a lesson uh, that I call I Surrender All. Uh, if you do have uh, any friends that are non-Christian, uh, maybe some believers that are out in the denominational world uh, that you would like to try to bring. Tomorrow night would be a good night to, to bring them for that. And then Friday, um, I'm going to try to uh, finish off the meeting by exhorting everyone not to give up. Uh, so hopefully uh, we'll be built up uh, beginning uh, with tonight. First uh, Kings chapter 18, uh, Elijah in this chapter issues a challenge to Ahab and Jezebel to gather the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel where it could be demonstrated before the religiously divided multitude who the one true God actually is. In verse 21, it says that Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Uh, This spirit of, of compromise that existed in Elijah's day regrettably also uh, continues in our present day. In fact, in every century since this event, you're going to find believers who seek to ease the struggle that's going on between light and darkness by surrendering certain facets of sacred scripture. And when the particular issue under discussion happens to pertain to the origin of mankind, this middle-of-the-road approach that we sometimes find believers taking is what we uh, have called theistic evolution. Uh, Now, in theistic evolution, there's a broad spectrum of beliefs that accompany this doctrine. Uh, Some are going to take uh, certain aspects of evolutionary teaching farther than others, But the simplest definition of theistic evolution is the attempt by believers in Jesus Christ to try to merge the creation story that we find in the book of Genesis with Darwinian evolution. And so theistic evolution is what we might call a hybrid belief system uh, for either people seeking a reprieve from making a total commitment to either side of the issue or for people who uh, might be desperately seeking credibility in the eyes of the uh, scientific community. Uh, But there's more going on behind the scenes uh, to this particular doctrine than simply a conflict between biblical interpretation uh, and the voice of science. Uh, In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 4, Paul says, um, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the story of Christ, who is the image of God. Uh, How far does this blindness reach? In 1 John 5 and verse 19, it says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
See, when we Christians uh, find ourselves at a crossroads with the ideas of this world, the question shouldn't be, what can we do to make Christianity more relevant in the eyes of the world? Rather, the question should be, what can we harness the courage to actually stand up for what God has plainly revealed in the Bible? And that's going to be the purpose of this lesson tonight. This is hopefully going to be a faith-building lesson for you guys because I'm going to attempt to try to show you that there really is no biblical and absolutely no scientific reason for us to be ashamed of believing in a six-day creation or a young earth. And there is no honor in allowing secular scientists who, who, who give us these views with all their material biases and prejudices uh, to, to allow them to dictate for us what should be a proper interpretation of Scripture. Rather, Paul said in Ephesians 4 and verse 14 that we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness of deceitful scheming. Um, let's first talk about why it is that we find so many believers that go down this path of theistic evolution, this middle road approach of, of Christianity and Darwinian evolution. Uh, there's a, um, a, cr a creationist who writes for, uh, y'all ever heard of that website, Answers in Genesis? Uh, good stuff on that website. There's some really good stuff. Um, one of the writers um, for that website is a man by the name of Terry Mortensen. And he wrote an article where he cited a bunch of other believers who they, they would claim to be staunch defenders of Scripture. And, and yet these so-called staunch defenders of Scripture don't actually believe that in Genesis they were literal 24-hour days of creation. Now, I'm going to show you a bunch of quotes here, and, and, and the purpose of showing you these quotes is not uh, so that we can dissect each and every single one of them. We don't really have time to do that. The reason I want to show you these quotes is as we're reading through them, I want to see if you see the same thing that I do. See if you can detect a pattern as far as the reason why they take the view that they do, okay? Now, Dr. Gleason Archer, he's a professor of the Old Testament. I can't remember what university. He said the following, From a superficial reading of Genesis 1, the impression would seem to be that the entire creative process took place in six 24-hour days. If this was the true intent of the Hebrew author, this seems to run counter to modern scientific research, which in indicates that the planet Earth was created seven, uh, several billion years ago. Uh, and then a few pages later, he noted that Genesis 1 reads like perfectly straightforward history. But if you go on to read what he's talking about, he doesn't interpret it as perfectly straightforward history. But if that's how it reads... Why wouldn't he interpret it that way? Well, as you're going to see in the pattern of some, of some of what these guys are saying, the answer is because what they're doing is they're putting more authority on the interpretation of Darwinian evolutionists than they are on what the Scripture actually says. 
Uh, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, uh, he's a so-called Bible scholar. Um, he actually rejects theistic evolution. The problem with him, though, is he rejects Noah's flood as the cause of much of what we see in the fossil record. Uh, he has uh, uh, doubts about some of the uh, theories that theistic evolutionists came up with to try to explain away the creation account in Genesis, but he himself was not sure how to harmonize the Bible with millions of years. So he stated this, we have to admit here, that the exegetical basis of the creationist is strong. In spite of the careful biblical and scientific research that has accumulated in support of the creationist view, there are problems that make the theory wrong to most, including many evangelical scientists. Data from various disciplines point to a very old earth and an older universe. Okay, so we're not going to talk about that. Just um, I just want you to see the pattern here. Dr. Meredith Klein, uh, that, that is a he, by the way. Uh, he is an Old Testament professor. Uh, he's an advocate, advocate of... Uh, there's so many theistic evolutionary views. He's an advocate of one of those views that's called the framework hypothesis, uh, one of the many tenets of theistic evolution. But he believes that Adam was a historical person, but he rejects the literal history of Genesis 1 and Genesis 6 through 9 and actually entertains the possibility that Adam evolved from ape-like creatures. Here's what he said. In this article, I have advocated an interpretation of biblical cosmogony according to which scripture is open to the current scientific view of of a very old universe, and in that respect does not discountenance the theory of the evolutionary origin of man. But while I regard the widespread insistence on a young earth can or, or to be a deplorable disservice to the cause of biblical truth, I at the same time deem commitment to the authority of scriptural teaching to involve the acceptance of Adam as an historical individual, the covenantal head and ancestral founder of the rest of mankind, and the recognition that it was the one and same divine act that constituted him the first man, Adam the son of God, and also imparted to him life. Uh, Dr. Gordon Lewis, uh, who's a theology professor, and Dr. Bruce Demarest, who's also a theology professor, um, they apparently favor another one of theistic evolutionist views called the day-age view, which we're going to talk about here in just a minute. They admit that at first reading the creation account, it seems to indicate that these six days of creative activity were 24 hours each. Nevertheless, here's what they conclude. Ultimately, responsible geology must determine the length of the Genesis days. Now again, time's not going to allow us to dissect each and every one of these quotes, but did, did you see the pattern? Did you see it? Here is what every single one of them is basically saying. First, they're admitting that when we read the creation account, it reads just like a literal narrative account of God creating the earth in six literal days. But then they say that we should allow the interpretation of scientists to be the final authority in determining the correct understanding of some, if not all, of Genesis chapter 1 through 11, and that because of their so-called findings, that must mean that the young earth view is wrong. But in their discussions on this topic, and I'm not sure if you caught any of, any of the words that they would use, they would use terms like science or, or findings or data 
research, evidence, or facts. So these men would absolutely affirm the possibility of interpretive neutrality when it comes to the development of this theology. What they are using to concoct this theistic evolutionary view is not scientific facts or scientific data, but rather evolutionary interpretations of some of the facts or data. And those interpretations are based on anti-biblical philosophical assumption. You see what's happening, brethren? Here's the issue with these guys. These men believe that we should, um, that we should place more uh, authority in what pop science says than in the Bible itself. They believe that we should allow scientists, with all their anti-biblical bias, to dictate for us believers how we actually interpret Scripture. And yet none of these theologians, none of these evangelicals will even agree on every point. They all have different spins to explain away the 24-hour days of creation. And they also would admit that it's impossible for all these evolutionary scientists to even be neutral concerning their interpretation of the evidence. Well, part of the problem for us, you know, when we're, when we're thinking about this, because uh, I've had people say this to me, you know, people say, well, well, Ryan, I'm no scientist. I mean, who am I to disregard what's being said and researched and studied by all these intellectuals? Well, I think we make this a lot harder than we need to. And, and you know why? Scientists, brethren, they're often wrong. Hypotheses are overturned every single year. That's been happening for hundreds of years. Look at all these things that scientists say were just absolutely true that have gotten overturned. Science once said that the sun revolved around the earth, right? And millions of people died believing that this was truth. Science once said that fire is caused by the release of a substance called phlogiston. Scientists once treated uh, the sick by bleeding them. That's, that's how our first president of the United States died. Y'all remember that? George Washington, they, they said, well, he's sick. I know what we'll do. Let's just bleed him to death. Well, they weren't trying to bleed him to death. They were trying to bleed the disease out of him. He ended up bleeding to death. Lamarckian science of the 19th century said that inheritance was transmitted by something called gumuls. And, of course, now we know that they're transmitted by genes. Charles Darwin himself believed that both women and the African races were evolutionary and intellectually inferior to white men. In 1877, astronomers believed that there were canals on Mars, and this theory lasted well into the 20th century until better imaging technology determined that it was nothing more than an optical uh, illusion that was created by dust. In 1940, they performed lobotomies to treat the mentally ill. In the 1960s, the steady state theory, the origin of the universe, was replaced by the Big Bang Theory. And for over a decade, scientists were saying that autism was caused by childhood vaccines until that was finally, thankfully, retracted in 2010. That's quite a list, isn't it? I assure you the full list is a whole lot longer than this one. Brethren, scientists have been getting things wrong for years. And they're going to continue getting things wrong. And you know why? Because scientists are fallible men. And besides even making honest mistakes, scientists don't live in some kind of neutral bubble. Scientists interpret their data with biases and presuppositions just like everybody else. What we need to do 
is interpret science based on Scripture. Because science changes as we get new evidence, as new evidence is considered, but God does not change. He is always right. Scientists are proved wrong, and hypotheses are overturned every single year, but God's Word can never be wrong. God is all-knowing, not the guy wearing the white lab coat. And that's why Isaiah 40 and verse 8 says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. Now, before the 19th century, there was virtually no question whatsoever whether Genesis should be interpreted literally or not. And we have a plethora of quotes from early Bible scholars to attest this fact. But then in the 1800s, somebody got this idea, uh, this theory, that they called uniformitarianism, and that's a big word, uh, but it began spreading around and it caused a certain uh, fence-sitting, Bible-believing scientist to start believing how the early chapters of Genesis should be interpreted. Uh, Uniformitarianism is a big word, but it's basically the idea that if all the sediment in the world, all of it, were gathered by slow, gradual processes as we might be able to measure it today, like an erosion and whatnot, that would mean it would take billions of years for the earth to form. But 19th century scientists never bothered to consider how certain catastrophic events like Noah's flood or other minor catastrophes such as volcanic eruptions actually played a role in in speeding up the process. And that is because uniformitarianism wasn't a byproduct of actual good science. Uniformitarianism was a byproduct of the humanistic community in Western Europe produced by the so-called Age of Enlightenment. And these men who came up with this idea, they were anti-Bible, naturalistic thinking men who resented not only God, but also they resented the idea of a young earth. And what happened was this thinking eventually infiltrated universities and believers were forced whether or not they were going to have to uh, stand up and fight against it or to go to the opposite extreme and fall away completely. But then some say, well, you know what? Let's try to earn a little bit of credibility in the scientific community by maybe suggesting that Genesis 1 shouldn't be taken so literally. And that's how many of these believers went. They took that middle ground direction. But Genesis 1 states in no uncertain terms that God created the earth in six literal days. The word that's used in in, in Genesis for day is translated from the Hebrew word yom, Y-O-M, as we would pronounce it. And this word is used 2,400 times in the Old Testament. Now, this may or may, may not surprise you, but there are actually times in the Old Testament when that word yom does not refer to a 24-hour period. But I'll tell you what, when it does, when it is used that way, it is always heavily apparent in the context. Outside of Genesis, there are 410 times when yom is used with a number, and it always refers to a day. It's used 38 times with the words morning and evening without the word day, and 23 times the words morning and evening with the word day when it's referring to an ordinary day. And it's used 52 times uh, when the, the word day is used with the word night, and it's referring to an ordinary day. You know, in the book of Jonah, uh, when we're told that he was in the belly of the well for three days, 
No one reads that wondering whether or not these are actual literal, you know, three 24-hour periods or, you know, maybe he was in the belly of the well for 12 billion years. Nobody questions that. And when Joshua and the nation of Israel marched around Jericho uh, one, one time for six days on each day, and then on the seventh time, uh, the seventh day, marched around it seven times more, no one says, well, you know, it was possible they did this for six million years. You never know. You never hear that. There's, there's no theological dispute there. But the six days of creation account, you know, somehow that just becomes the exception. Because what's happening in the Western world is that people are being manipulated into thinking that scientists, they're, well, they're just the pinnacle of all knowledge, and all we have to do is just put everything in a test tube, and we can prove it. But, brother, we, we can't do that. Because scientists are fallible human beings. They're wrong all the time, and they've been proved wrong on a variety of subjects for hundreds of years. But naturalistic scientists, what they want you to believe is that their findings, well, you, you can't say anything against them. They're incontrovertible. Listen, you want to know what the biggest thing that scientists have ever discovered is? I got you on the edge of your seats now, right? I'm, I'm going to tell, tell you the biggest thing that scientists have actually discovered. You ready? Scientists have discovered that people believe anything when you claim scientists have discovered it. Aha, uh -huh, right? But but that's but I'm serious. That, that's what they think, right? All you got to do is go to the History Channel, National Geographic, Discovery Channel, and some scientist says, well, we have discovered And everybody's like, well, you know, who am I to argue with that, right? But our challenge is Christians who have made that great confession, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, our challenge is to stand by that confession and no longer bow the knee to fallible, biased men, but rather to put our faith in the great I Am who was and who is and is to come. Scientific interpretations will forever change. Hypotheses are overturned every day, but God's Word will stand when this world is on fire. Let's look at the creation account together. I want to read through the entire thing, and let's see if we can establish a pattern, and then we're going to talk about how this thing should actually be interpreted. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, a third day. 
Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make in our image, make man in our image and according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which is fruit-yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the sky, and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. Did, did you see the repetition? Evening, morning, day, night. You ever wondered why the repetition is there? I mean, could God maybe be hinting at something? Sometimes I'll ask uh, some, some folks that I'll study this with who, who would take the opposing view as myself. I'll say to them, please explain to me what God could have said to make the text any more literal than what he actually said. I mean, just tell me what you would need him to say to make it more literal. I mean, he's just about as literal as he can get. Did you know that outside the biblical text, there's actually no basis whatsoever, whatsoever for a seven-day week? It's so deeply rooted in human experience. It's so natural physiologically, we don't even think about its significance often. All the other important time markers that we use are clearly based on astronomical and terrestrial uh, constants, like the day, for example. All the day is is the duration of one rotation of the Earth on its axis. 
The year is a duration of one orbital revolution of the earth around the sun. The, the month is even the approximate interval between new moons. Even the seasons are marked by uh, equinoxes and, and solstices. But the week, the week has no astronomical basis whatsoever. And yet we order our entire lives around a seven-day uh, seven cycle, do we not? How could a system like that ever been devised? The answer is Genesis chapter 1. This is from where we get our week. But if each Genesis day, if each one was really billions of years in length, could we even have a basis? Its very existence can only be explained by the reality of a six-day completed creation. Now, this begs the question, if it does read as straightforward as it appears to read, which all those theologians we looked at earlier said, yeah, it, it reads like straightforward history. If it really does, how then do those who reject these literal days, the theistic evolutionists, how do they get around this? Well, the answer is the vast majority of them attempt to make it into an allegory. Now, an allegory is a literary device in which uh, a story with its characters and events is intended to only symbolize ideas and symbolize concepts rather than taking them literal. Uh, now, when something has been considered literal for thousands of years, like Genesis chapter 1 and 2, uh, you don't prove that it's an allegory simply by claiming that it's an allegory. You don't prove it by suggesting it. Just because someone makes a claim, that doesn't mean that that claim is true. The way you interpret it and figure out whether it's literary, or literal, or whether it's an allegory, is you let the text interpret itself. So who penned the book of Genesis? Well, Moses did, right? And in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 and 11 that I have up here, Moses actually provides for us a commentary for what he wrote in Genesis chapter 1. In these verses, Exodus 20, uh, verses 8 through 11, Moses is reciting commandment number 4 of the Ten Commandments. And notice what he says here. He says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. Why, Moses? For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Why did the Jews have a six-day work week and then one day of rest? because of the model that Genesis 1 provides. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested. Uh, here's another one in Exodus 31, uh, verses 16 through 17. Uh, Moses writes here, So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever for, again, in six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth. But on the seventh day, he ceased from labor and was refreshed. Now, do those days sound like literal days, or do they sound like allegorical days? Did the Israelites work for several millions of years and then rest for another couple million years? Is that, is that how they understood it? Well, of course not. That sounds ridiculous. 
And so if it is plain in this context what a day is, and Moses used the creation days to substantiate their work week, would that not also mean that the days of Genesis 1 are to be taken literally? There's another way we can prove this as well. If you look in Exodus 31, uh, verses 14 through 15, and, and that's when you consider the consequences of not honoring the Sabbath day. In verses 14 and 15 of Exodus 31, Moses writes, Therefore you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six works, six days' work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. Now, the reason I like to use this verse because you know if God is is willing to put someone to death for something, wouldn't He want to make sure that that law was absolutely clear? Was the day something that was clear or unclear to the Jew? I mean, can you imagine a Jew saying, well, I know God said the rest on the seventh day, but how do we know that these are literal 24-hour days? Maybe maybe what we need to do just to be safe is to rest for a million years and then to go to work for another six million years. These texts in Exodus make it clear they were literal 24-hour days. Now, to get around this, sometimes theistic evolutionists will say, well, Maybe God only spoke to Moses allegorically. Maybe what he wrote was literal, but maybe what happened was God spoke to him allegorically. Well, not according to God himself. If you look in Exodus, or not Exodus, but the book of Numbers, and this is a very important verse for this discussion, by the way. Numbers chapter 12, uh, verses 6 through 8. Because in Numbers 12, God is making clear to the people how he chose to communicate with his servant Moses. And he tells us this way. This is how he chose to communicate with Moses. Beginning in verse 6 in Numbers 12. Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. But notice the contrast. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? Notice that God spoke to Moses clearly, not in riddles. I I get from this that he's saying, hey, me and Moses are tight. I don't have to speak in symbolism. I don't have to speak to him in dreams. I can speak to him face to face. Exodus 24 uh, and verse 4 tells us that Moses wrote down all these words. Uh, We know that these words were authenticated on Mount Sinai with great powers and miracles intended to produce godly fear in the Israelite recipients. Even Joshua, if we read in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 7, it says that he, he was told not to turn from these words to the right or to the left. Can you imagine how hard that would have been if it was nothing but an allegory? How do you turn from the right from the left when you're, you're, you're having to ter- interpret something very you know subjectively? And he encouraged the Israelites to do the same in Joshua chapter 23 verse 6. Don't turn to the right or to the left on these things. That being said, while it is certainly true that the Bible contains different genres of literature. The creation account was never intended to be some kind of mysterious, symbolic description of obscure events. 
The Genesis account was intended to be straightforward historical narrative to produce faith. Uh, one more verse that I think is very important for this discussion is in Mark chapter 10, if you turn there. Mark chapter 10. Now, before we talk about this verse, let's remember what evolution teaches, Darwinian evolution. Evolution teaches that the world came into existence from a tiny spot smaller than a period at the end of a sentence some, they say, 13.8 billion years ago. Uh, Edwin Hubble, uh, he was the one that discovered the universe is expanding. We know that this is true. But he tried to explain that this expansion was the result of some big bang that occurred 13.8 billion years ago. And then 4.5 billion years ago, the earth was supposedly created. And then 3.5 billion or 3.8 billion years ago, life appeared on earth. Now, this is what evolutionists say. Now, if that's true, then this is the timeline that would make sense, right? If that's true, it would mean that Adam came really towards the end of all this. Because according to evolutionists, it took uh, uh, ten of, just 10 of those 13.8 billion years between the time when the universe was created and the earth was created, plus uh, a couple billion more years before man even came into being. And so that's the timeline that would make sense if ev Darwinian evolution is true, right? But notice what Jesus said in Mark 10 and verse 6. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Who's he talking about here? Adam and Eve. In other words, that's what the Bible teaches, okay? That's it right there. Not this up here. The Bible does not teach this. The Bible teaches this. From the beginning, God made them male and female. In other words, Jesus himself, the one that we all, if you're a Christian here tonight, you stood up in front of people and you said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He has authority, right? He is the Son of God. What he says goes. That's what he says. That from the very beginning, God started creating things. Man existed there right on day six. Jesus is not affirming that billions of years passed before man was created but that it happened in the beginning on day six, not 10 billion years after creation, 120 hours after creation is what Jesus is affirming. Well, some will say, well, I believe the Bible, but when it comes down to this, there's, you know, there's just too much science. Well, if that is the case, what are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about the unscientific virgin birth of Jesus? What will you do with the unscientific resurrection of Jesus? What will you do with the unscientific ten plagues, the, the, the parting of the Red Sea, all, all the other miracles that we see throughout Scripture? You know, Psalm 11 verse 3 says that if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's why a lesson like this is so important. I mean, I'm not just trying to, you know, uh, pick it, you know, just pick around to try to find something to argue with people about. This is why it's so important. If we're willing to let the opinions and assumptions of humanistic scientists supersede Scripture when it comes to the creation, brethren, we have no basis whatsoever to believe in any of God's supernatural workings of Scripture after the fact. Because all it will take to shatter your faith and all these other things is for the next humanistic scientist 
to pub publish a new hypothesis in some paper or some article that the Discovery Channel picks up with all these well-sounding words based entirely off their own biased conjecture. And so in the somewhat altered words of Elijah, how long will we continue to hesitate between two opinions? Who are we going to start listening to? Are we going to listen to the creator of heaven and earth? Or are we going to listen to the guy in the white lab coat? Um, John MacArthur uh, said this much. And, and I understand, you know, we're quoting John MacArthur. I understand that there's a lot of things that he would have said that we would disagree with. Um, but boy, was he spot on with what he said here. He said the following. In other words, if you reject the creation account in Genesis, you have no basis for believing the Bible at all. Now, understand what he's saying and what he's not saying here. He's not saying that if you don't believe there are literal days that you, that you don't believe the Bible. That's not what he's saying. He, he's saying you don't have a basis. I should have underlined that. You don't have a basis for believing the Bible. You don't have a foundation for interpreting the rest of the Bible miracles as literal. Further, he says, if you doubt or explain away the Bible's account of the six days of creation, where do you put the reins on your skepticism? Do you start with Genesis 3, which explains the origin of sin and everything from chapter 3 on? Or maybe you don't sign on until sometime after chapter 6 because the flood is invariably questioned by scientists too. Or perhaps you find the Tower of Babel too hard to reconcile with the linguist theories about how languages originated and evolved. So maybe you start taking the Bible as literal history beginning with the life of Abraham. <laughs> but when you get to Moses' plagues against Egypt, will you deny those too? What about the miracles of the New Testament? Is there any reason to regard any of the supernatural elements of the biblical history as anything but poetic symbolism? You see the point? You know, if we're, if we're worried about being laughed at by scientists and the so-called skeptics and intellectuals, or if we want so badly to be looked at as credible in the eyes of evolutionists, the point MacArthur's making here is we're going to have to reject a whole lot more than Genesis chapter 1. Because naturalistic scientists believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ in which we place our trust and our hope is just as ridiculous as those six days of creation. And so I try to tell some of these young folks, especially in Auburn, where we deal with this kind of stuff so often for what they push in the universities there, that if we, if we just cannot live with ourselves unless we condone scientists' views, what are you going to do about eugenics? What are you going to do about homosexuality? Because after all, scientists suggest that people are born that way, and so it's not their fault. What about euthanasia that's not just now available in countries like the Netherlands and, and you know, Belgium, but it's made its way to, to states like Oregon and Washington and parts of Montana and even New Mexico now? What about pop psychology that condones fornication, adultery, extramarital affairs, abandoning your, abandoning your family for the sake of happening, uh, happiness, uh, unscriptural divorces and remarriages? John chapter 3 and verse 12, Jesus said, if I told you earthly things and you don't believe, believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The point is, Genesis, the book of Genesis, is designed to be the beginning of our belief, not the beginning of our unbelief. 
And as long as we allow people to to dictate our interpretation of the 24-hour days in Genesis uh, and, and tell us that we need to accommodate for pop science, we're no longer bowing before God. We're bowing before the guy in the white lab coat. And brethren, this reveals something about our heart. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he can't understand them because they are spiritually appraised. If we can't trust the Bible if it talks about earthly things, how will we ever trust it when it talks about heavenly things? And that's why a lesson like this is so important for us so that we can be ready to give an answer for the faith that we have. Uh, the truth's going to win out uh, in the end. Uh, it always has and, and always will. But my encouragement to all of us is to make sure that we stand on the side of God and not to give in to the prodding of you know that doctor know-it-all scientist whose vision and reasoning is just so biased and so limited. I'll leave you with this verse, and then the lesson is yours. First Peter three and verse fifteen: Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. To understand, we we focus so much on all that, but this is where it all begins right here. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Get it there firmly. Separate yourself from all that world and sanctify Him in your heart. Because then you're going to be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in it within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And that's our encouragement to you tonight. If you are here tonight and you are not a Christian and you have not yet begun to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, uh, then the way that you can begin that process is certainly by obedience to the gospel that he has given us in the Bible. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of your God, the Son of God, and that he came here and he died for your sins, and you're willing, based on your repentance of your former sinful life, to confess that he is indeed the Son of God, we would love to baptize you tonight so that you can have your sins washed away. Likewise, if there's someone here tonight as who's maybe failed in some realm of spirituality, if you feel like you need to make a public confession for anything, or if you just need the help of the saints here or, or prayers on your behalf, uh, we'd likewise be able, would love to help you with that. If you'll just come forward and let it be known while we stand, while we sing this invitation song.